What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Spokane, Washington was home to a notorious downtown strip known as The Track, where sex workers found clients. On August 1st, 1998, Christine Smith was working her usual spot. Christine was approached by a 46-year-old man in a black van, and after agreeing to provide her services, she got into the vehicle. Unbeknownst to her, the unassuming man driving the car was a seasoned serial killer. He pretended to be exactly what he wasn't. The all-American hero, family man, was actually a sex addict who killed prostitutes for pleasure. After having sex with her, the man pulled out a 25 caliber handgun and shot Christine in the head. She survived the attack, and believing she had been stabbed, Christine fled the car. She later found bullet fragments in her head. She had this incredible rush with death and miraculously had escaped with only a bullet wound. She would later learn that she would be the only person to ever survive one of this man's brutal attacks. For more than 20 years, Washington State was plagued by an elusive killer targeting female sex workers. Investigators would never have guessed that the man they were looking for was acting as an upstanding member of the community and model citizen. He didn't look like a monster. He looked like an average Joe. And he was a father of five. He lived in a middle-class neighborhood. He was seen as respectable. He was a decorated pilot in the US Army National Guard. He wasn't on our radar. There was nothing that pointed us in his direction as being the serial killer. This man was living a double life. And typically, when someone got into his car, they were never seen alive again. He saw them as disposable. He saw them for just his own pleasure, and then he'd get rid of them after he'd had his fun. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Robert Lee Yates Jr. Robert Lee Yates Jr. was born on May 27, 1952, in Spokane, Washington. He was raised in the small town of Oak Harbor. Robert Lee Yates' father worked on a local naval base. He was a blue-collar worker. He had a very close relationship with his father. I think he idolized him. And his father was a coach for a Little League baseball team. Criminal psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that Yates' upbringing was uneventful and that he went through school as an average student. Robert Lee Yates Jr. played baseball at school, but he wasn't the star on the team. He was good at his schoolwork, but he wasn't the, the, the smart person in the class. He was just average. So there was nothing that stood out. There was nothing that said that this family would be the family that would produce a serial killer. The Yates were a happy, all-American family. 
Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber says this is uncommon for violent killers. In many ways, Yates' relationship with his father was completely normal. Usually it's thought that even one positive role model is sufficient to stop people from becoming seriously psychiatrically disturbed, and yet it didn't do anything here. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? Special Agent Norm Brown supervised the task force that investigated Yates's murders. He says when investigators dug into the Yates family history, they uncovered several things that could explain how this average child turned into a monster. We learned that his grandmother killed his grandfather, and there was some violence in the family, obviously. Uh, his grandmother didn't just kill his grandfather, but she killed him in a especially gruesome way. She took an ax to him, actually. And then was committed to a mental institution. And that becomes, I suspect, an intergenerational message, which is women are very dangerous. They have what you want, but they're very dangerous people. Along with the violence in his family's history, Yates was allegedly sexually assaulted when he was six years old by another child in his neighborhood. However, Yates kept the assault a secret and it was never reported to police. We often find in serial killers that that violence is actually rooted in shame. That shame is often something that has happened during the childhood, something that the child felt they had no control over, but something that they felt judged by, something that, that made them feel less worthy. After graduating high school, Yates married his first wife. In 1972, when he was 20 years old, Yates and his wife moved to the small town of Walla Walla, Washington, where the couple enrolled in college. While living in Walla Walla, Yates spent his free time alone in the woods, hunting, hiking, and fishing. The parents of his wife, years later, say actually he was quite a loner. We never really got to know him. Even though he was married to their daughter, he was somebody who was quite insular. And it's that constant theme of invisibility. The marriage ended in divorce after just 18 months. But before the divorce was even finalized, Yates began a new relationship with another woman named Linda. She would become Yates's second wife in 1976. In December 1974, Yates was hired at the Washington State Penitentiary as a corrections officer. It was also during this time that the first of his five children was born. He works as a prison officer, and this is a job that's about the enforcement of rules and regulations. It's about status and it's about power and it's about authority. And this also coincides with his first murder. On July 13, 1975, a now 23-year-old Yates was shooting targets just outside town near Mill Creek when he came across two students. Longtime friends, 22-year-old Susan Savage and 21-year-old Patrick Oliver, were having a picnic when Yates came upon them. This was an area that he knew quite well. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and he was fairly confident that he wasn't going to be disturbed. And it wouldn't surprise me if he'd been fantasizing about this for quite some time. And he comes across two college graduates, and he decides that he's going to kill them. And that's what he does. He literally shoots them in cold blood. A rage burst out. He acted entirely instinctively and shot them both. It is unimaginable 
Why would you do that? There is something profoundly out of kilter in Yeats's personality. And then Yeats took the act one step further. He placed the body of Susan on top of that of Patrick. And Susan's body, he'd removed a lot of her clothing. So this is really humiliating. This is really demeaning. Yates left the bodies by the side of the creek and covered them with debris, including a sleeping bag and a tire. Local journalist Bill Moreland, who covered the story of Yates's killings, wonders what could have caused Yates to commit this murder. Yates essentially assassinates them. And what his motivation was is, I mean, it's anyone's guess. Did he think that these people were being sinful? Did, did it go against his religious upbringing? I'm only speculating. There's no way of knowing. He's never talked about what motivated him to kill that young couple. This would have been an escalation of behavior rather than a switch being flipped. People don't just decide to kill overnight. They don't turn into murderers one day, having been completely normal the previous day. I, I think that he was probably stalking people. He was probably fantasizing about harming others. In 1977, just two years after murdering the students at Mill Creek, 25-year-old Robert Lee Yates Jr. joined the United States Army. While serving, he pursued becoming a pilot and became certified to fly civilian transport airplanes and helicopters. He would go on to be stationed in several countries around the world, including Germany and Somalia. He has several tours in Germany. He becomes chief warrant officer. In every respect, an all-American hero. The sort of chap that you hang bunting out for when he returns home. Yates went on to become a decorated soldier during his 18 years of service. But over the course of his successful career, Yates could not contain his murderous urges. There was one interesting incident when he was serving in Somalia. He allegedly shot a pig from the, the helicopter, and, and that wouldn't have been an easy thing to, to achieve in, in a moving airborne vehicle. It's something that he did that he didn't have to do. He wanted to prove to himself that, that he had hit a target from that far away. Wherever Yates was stationed, trouble seemed to follow. Women in that area near where he'd been stationed uh, many of them prostitutes suddenly ended up dead. But Yates was never tied to these mysterious murders. Apparently because of the lapse of time and because of technology issues, there was no DNA saved from some of those victims. Then on April 1st, 1996, 44-year-old Yates, now a father of five, made a surprising decision. After nearly two decades of distinguished service, he resigned from the Army. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel says that the timing of Yates' resignation was confounding. He pulls out and suddenly returns to Spokane. He only had to serve a further 18 months before he would have got a full military pension. Now, why would a man with five children and a wife suddenly decide to leave the army? I think the answer lies in another killing. In August 1995, eight months before Yates's resignation, a 19-year-old trans woman was shot in the face by an unknown killer. It was believed she was a sex worker. Her body was found dumped off the side of a road near Fort Rucker, an Army aviation base where Yates had been stationed at the time for training. Her murder was never solved, 
but many believe Yates was the culprit. I think that unknown killer was Robert Lee Yates Jr. And I think that's why he left the army suddenly. That I feel that he was appalled. I think Yates flipped. And I think that's why he suddenly snatched his wife and family out of a very good army career, which was about to see him get a substantial and generous pension and take them back to Spokane out of the blue. And this is a real pivotal moment, I think, in his life because he's somebody who operates quite well when there are boundaries around him. But now those boundaries are gone, I think we're going to see some changes. Yates is also suspected of committing two other murders in Washington state between 1995 and 1996. However, he has never been officially tied to those killings. Then in 1997, Yates began what would be a string of 12 gruesome murders. He was intent on killing and intent on killing prostitutes. He would target prostitutes, perhaps because they were easy, perhaps because they, no one would miss them. In 1997, after having left his position with the United States Army and moving his family to Spokane, Washington, Robert Lee Yates Jr. joined the Army National Guard in the hopes of becoming a helicopter pilot. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley shares more. We have him entering yet another career that involves him enforcing the law. So this is something that enables him to continue having that power and that control and that status. But Yates's career as a pilot was quickly put on hold as he awaited required medical testing for the position. He's grounded. He's not allowed to fly his helicopter. Now, this is a pivotal moment for me because somebody else has taken control. Somebody else has made that decision. He's not the one that's in the driving seat anymore. Despite the delay, Yates remained in the National Guard. But with a large family to support, he took on a second job at a manufacturing plant in Spokane. And unbeknownst to everyone around him, Yates was committing terrible acts of violence. I think the murders that he committed were an attempt to get back control. I think there were things happening in his life that he felt were out of his control, and he wanted to feel powerful again. His new hunting ground was the seedy strip in downtown Spokane known to locals as The Track, and his prey was sex workers. Special Agent Norm Brown speculates about how Yates picked his targets. Prostitutes to Yates were easy targets in that they would get into his vehicle without any questions asked. They would just decide what money was going to be exchanged for services. And the prostitutes were very vulnerable because most of them were drug addicts and they'd sell themselves for money and use it to buy drugs. Robert Lee Yates was very much a regular face on the, the sex workers scene in, in this part of town at the time. So he wouldn't just pick up women to have sex with, he would do drugs with them. He became part of their community. And I think he would be trusted by them. He was somebody that they knew. In the summer of 1997, Yates picked up 20-year-old Heather Hernandez from the track with the intent to have sex with her. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber believes that Yates's victims were completely unsuspecting of the danger they were in. I suspect that the victims may not have known even the second before they died that this was going to be a killing. Because I suspect 
Their interaction went down much as an interaction with a prostitute goes down. And then when he was done, he draws his gun and he shoots. Yates shot Heather in the head with a 22 caliber handgun. Literally, there's just a second that the victim becomes aware that something's amiss, and after that, the victim is dead. After he murdered her, Yates dumped Heather's body on the side of the road. Well, he was brazen in his thought as far as dumping the bodies. Before the end of the summer, Yates was back on the track looking for his next victim. He found her in 16-year-old Jennifer Joseph. He picked her up and after having sex with her, murdered her. Unlike many serial killers, the way that Yates kills is instrumental. He has sex with his victims, and then he pulls out a gun and he shoots them. They die virtually instantaneously at the hand of somebody who knows how to use weapons effectively. He's not trying to torture. He's not trying to terrorize. He's simply eliminating the witness. He watches as the life literally drains from them. And this is an individual who's he's not going to stop because his offending is getting worse. It's becoming more sadistic. Once dead, Yates prepared to move Jennifer's body. Journalist Bill Moreland says Yates's methods were more logical than one would expect from a serial killer. After shooting them in the heads, he put bags over their head largely uh, to keep his car clean. I mean, he didn't want the blood dri dripping out and would put plastic bags over their heads to, to keep the mess off his car. Ten days later, local farmers found Jennifer's decomposing body. Yates had dumped her just northeast of Spokane. This site where Jennifer was found, it was next to a working farm near to an alfalfa field. So he's not really seeming too bothered about covering up. It seems that he just wants to get away at this point in time. That same day, officers made another grim discovery, the body of Heather Hernandez. Heather is found in a field in a parking lot off of the strip in East Spokane. Robert Yates would typically bury them slightly or partially. Other times he would cover them with debris. Many of them were found nude or semi-nude. They were discarded like trash along the road. And that's exactly how he saw these women. He saw them as disposable. He saw them for just his own pleasure, and then he'd get rid of them after he'd had his fun. After the discovery of both bodies, Spokane detectives were given a vital lead. We received a tip that one of the victims, Jennifer Joseph, was last seen getting into a white Corvette. With this new information, Investigators were on high alert for any information related to the white Corvette. Then, on September 24, 1997, a local police officer patrolling the track pulled Yates over for speeding. And a police officer actually had stopped him to fill out a report, but in the vehicle description, instead of writing down Corvette, the officer wrote down CAM, apparently referring to a Camaro. The police officer actually wrote down that he was in a different kind of car, and that meant that they missed Robert Lee Yates. Without the ties to the suspected car, Yates slipped past authorities and was free to continue his atrocities. Later that fall, Yates carried on with his M.O. by picking up another sex worker, 28-year-old Darla Scott, from the track. She was never seen alive again. 
He would pick up these women, he would shoot them in the head, and then he would bury their bodies. So this was very cold. This was very kind of executioner style. Darla's body was found on November 5th, 1997, about 10 miles south of downtown Spokane. I visited the recovery site of Darla, and she was dumped in some bushes by some trees and rolled down a hill, but not very far off, off the uh, Hangman Valley Road where I often rode my bicycle for exercise. When I ride by there, I always think of her, and my heart goes out to her and her family because she was treated like trash after she was killed. Then, in December of 1997, Yates traveled to Tacoma, bringing his killing spree approximately 300 miles east of his usual hunting grounds. As a pilot with the Washington Army National Guard, he was based here in Spokane, but on certain weekends he would travel to the other side of the state, to near Tacoma, Washington, where he would do military weekend drills. While in Tacoma, Yates killed again. On December 6th, he picked up 34-year-old sex worker Melinda Mercer. Robert Lee Yates didn't just target an area that he was familiar with. He would be carrying out his crimes in areas where he just happened to find himself. He was in Tacoma on one particular date, and this coincided with the murder of Melinda. Melinda's body was found the day after she went missing. She had been dumped by a railroad track. I think at this point, he's becoming quite arrogant. He's, he's not gotten caught so far, so he's pushing the boundaries a little bit. And you see this happen with quite a lot of serial killers. They have this kind of proneness to boredom, this need for stimulation, this need to kind of mix things up a bit. And I think that's what he's doing when he's killing outside of the area he knows. By the end of 1997, the 45-year-old army vet turned serial killer had shot and murdered at least 12 innocent people, 11 of which were young female sex workers. Despite the growing threat to their safety, sex workers in the area continued to go out and work. I think the fact that sex workers in this area were still going out and still working, even though they knew that their friends and their acquaintances were being killed by the serial killer, just shows what, what desperate circumstances these women live in. They, they have to go out, they have to work for money. On December 22nd, 1997, Spokane, Washington police set up a special task force to catch the serial killer terrorizing America's Pacific Northwest. The killer, Robert Lee Yates, had already murdered 12 people. And number 13 was on the horizon. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley gives details on the incident. Robert E. Yates murders Sonny during the Christmas period of 1997, where most people are celebrating the festivities with their families. This really does show me that, that serial killers don't take time out. They, they don't stop for the holidays. They want to keep killing because they enjoy it, because it gives them power and it gives them control. On December 26, 1997, detectives discovered the bodies of two more women, both were found within Spokane city limits. Laurel and Sean, their bodies were found at the same time. Laurel was shot in the head and discarded like a piece of rubbish. 
Sean was another one of Robert Lee Yates's victims, and I think he was getting a little bit arrogant. He was getting a little bit sloppy at the time of her killing. So after he killed her, he placed the plastic bag over her head, and there was a print that was found on that bag. And that turned out to be his print. So, so as he's becoming more bold, as he's becoming more confident, he's starting to make mistakes. Investigators hoped that the fingerprint would lead them to their suspect, but Yates continued to fly under the radar. Fear began to spread through the general public as the Spokane murders continued. Journalist Bill Moreland remembers that time. By the end of the 90s, there were like a dozen or so of these prostitutes who had turned up dead and there was no killer in custody. And by then everyone was saying, we have a serial killer in our midst and something needs to be done about it. I think the impacts of his crimes on the community were incredibly significant because here's this guy who appears to be completely regular, completely average, completely invisible, to be honest, somebody who didn't really stand out. And yet he was able to, to wreak such havoc uh, across the community. With the steep incline of unsolved murder cases, in January 1998, the FBI was called in to assist the Spokane Task Force in catching their killer. Now, the Spokane Serial Killer Task Force had hundreds of leads to begin with, and turned out to be thousands of leads. Some of those leads were interstate, in fact, even in other countries. So they asked the FBI to get involved. Special Agent Norm Brown was the FBI's liaison officer who coordinated efforts and resources with the Spokane Serial Killer Task Force. It's difficult to work these type of cases because we know women are being killed the longer we can't find the serial killer. So we're anxious to find the killer. So that works on the head and the hearts of the investigators. I spent about 100 hours plus following leads and helping the, the task force. It was challenging. We'd try to think why the killer would pick this site to dump the bodies. Generally, they're found in fields or in wooded areas, but not always. A couple of bodies were found within the city limits. On January 19, 1998, the task force sponsored a candlelit vigil to memorialize the many women who'd been murdered on the streets of Spokane. They hoped it would lead to more information about the killer. Uh, there was a lot of community outrage. A lot of people thought that the law enforcement authorities weren't giving us enough attention because of who these victims were. There were candlelight vigils, and of course, there were undercover police there watching to see who would show up. Sadly, the vigil did not provide any more leads, and investigators were left waiting for the next attack. In April 1998, Yates sold his white Corvette, in which he'd been stopped for speeding on the track by police the previous year. He traded the flashy car in for a big black van and returned to the track to continue feeding his murderous urges. Robert Lee Yates really is the embodiment of the arrogant, narcissistic serial killer who, who really does know his patch, that he would go up and down, and he set up his vehicle as a mobile sex unit. So this is a guy who's very confident in what he's doing. He's hiding in plain sight. He, he's almost taunting the police, essentially, and, and saying, hey, everybody, look at me, look what I'm up to, and, and none of you have caught me yet. In May 1998, Yates picked up 43-year-old Melody Murfin in downtown Spokane. Just like with his previous victims, he followed the same deadly routine. He had sex with her, and afterwards, he killed her. 
Melody was reported missing by her family shortly after she disappeared. Even with support from the FBI, the task force was unable to locate her body. Melody had been missing for several days, weeks, and then months. She was last seen living with her sister in Minnesota, or that she was working the streets in Tennessee, or selling drugs in California. None of these leads panned out. It's like she just dropped off the face of the earth. But shortly after Melody's murder, Yates, perhaps overconfident in his actions, began to make a series of mistakes. In July, Yates picked up 47-year-old Micklin Durning and killed her the same way as the rest of his victims. But this time, Yates buried her body close to home, just a block from the manufacturing company in Spokane where he worked. The body of Michelin was actually found near Robert Lee Yates' place of work, and I think this shows how arrogant and how, how incredibly confident he was becoming in his killing. Very often, serial killers will keep a clear separation between their work life and their home life and their, their killing, but it's starting to merge into one. Police questioned many of the employees at the manufacturing company, including Yates, but with no evidence to link him to the murder, Yates avoided identification once more. And he's actually interviewed in relation to the discovery of this body. And part of me thinks he probably quite enjoyed that. He probably quite enjoyed the police asking him questions, knowing that, that he knew all along who was responsible. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber believes that by this point, Yates was feeling overconfident. Like many serial killers, he starts slow and begins to escalate, and the frequency of the killing and the amount of the killing gets more and more. And there's something else that becomes more and more over time. He makes less and less efforts to hide the bodies after a while. But Yates's luck was about to run out. On August 1st, 1998, Yates picked up another sex worker named Christine Smith in downtown Spokane. Christine Smith got inside the van of Robert Yates, attempted to perform oral sex on him, and during that process, she felt a sharp blow to her head, and she immediately got out, ran away. It was like a glancing blow, and she didn't even realize initially that she'd been shot. It was a, a superficial wound near her ear, as I recall. Christine Smith's case really is absolutely astounding. She thought she'd just been stabbed, she managed to escape the car and go and get help from people. This is a witness who has survived. This is a witness who can identify him. And it's only a matter of time before the police catch up with him. Despite Christine's escape, Yates was unable to contain the urge to kill. And in September, he was on the hunt again. His next victim was Connie Ellis. Her body was found several weeks after her disappearance. She was found by a search-and-rescue dog down an embankment in Tacoma. These women turning up dead, and most of them were prostitutes. And it was the common theme with these victims. And they were uh, difficult to find background information about them, and they were turning up dead one at a time. And many of these uh, cases would result in just, you know, a short little news item on the evening news or in the newspaper. The following month, Yates returned to his favorite hunting ground, the track. On November 10th, 1998, Yates picked up a sex worker named Jennifer. But before he could make his move, Yates was pulled over and his details were taken down by an officer. 
and the police officer actually had stopped him and filled out a police report about suspicious activity. He had a, a young woman in the car with him, and there was no criminal conduct that he could be arrested on the spot for, and the police officer filled out a report. That police encounter saved Jennifer's life. Yates immediately dropped her off just a few blocks away. At the time, she had no idea just how close to death she had been. In the fall of 1998, serial killer Robert Lee Yates Jr. was still operating, but investigators were slowly closing in. Their investigation into the Spokane serial killer continued, and they were about to make a crucial discovery. Following two police interviews the previous year, detectives discovered that Yates had once owned a white Corvette, a car linked to one of the elusive serial killer's victims found in 1997. Here's criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. There was a witness who saw Jennifer Joseph getting into a white Corvette on that summer evening that she disappeared. And a white Corvette is quite a distinctive vehicle. It's one that you're not going to mistake for something else. And this is something that's going to be really important in the, the conviction of Robert Lee Yates. On September 15, 1999, 47-year-old Yates was brought in for questioning. Robert E. Yates is called in by the police and he can't account for his whereabouts on, on a couple of the key dates. One of the things that really does trip him up is the police are presenting their evidence to him and they, they say about a, a white Camaro being seen and he corrects them, he goes, oh no, it's not a Camaro, it's a Corvette. Yates's admission was a breakthrough, but it wasn't enough to arrest him. And despite being sure they were on the right track, police needed more evidence to link him to the Washington murders. Without the necessary proof, Yates was released the same day. The task force quickly issued a search warrant and tracked down the new owner of the 1977 white Corvette that Yates had sold. Bill Moreland, the local journalist who covered Yates's killings, says it was a grueling task to locate the car. They pulled registrations for every white Corvette in Idaho and Washington and this region and winnowed that down and ultimately located the Corvette that Robert Yates had once owned. After the task force recovered Yates's white Corvette, they submitted it for forensic examination. Special Agent Norm Brown supervised the task force. He remembers the details of what they found. The investigators were able to recover evidence that linked Yates to the killing of one of the prostitutes. One of the victims, Jennifer Joseph, had carpet fibers on her body. They processed that car and found the same kind of carpet threads that matched Jennifer. Jennifer Joseph had been murdered by Yates two years earlier. Her body had been found dumped in an alfalfa field. The detectives meticulously took the Corvette apart. And in that process, they found a small button that matched the kind of button was on the clothing worn by Jennifer Joseph. They then knew that Jennifer Joseph had been in that vehicle prior to her death. Investigators also discovered several blood stains in the vehicle. After DNA testing, they discovered the blood was a match for Jennifer's. They knew that her murder had been in that vehicle before she'd been dumped in a field northwest of Spokane. All of the evidence is starting to match up and it leads them right back to Robert Lee Yates. With a growing amount of evidence against him, 
the task force put in a warrant for Yates's arrest. By the time the detectives get a warrant for his arrest, they are 100% certain they've got the right man. On April 17, 2000, the task force put the Yates family home under 24-hour surveillance. And the next morning at 6 a.m., Robert Lee Yates Jr. was arrested right outside his house while leaving for work. After the arrest, detectives searched Yates's house for further proof. Authorities had immediately taken a sample of Yates's DNA to use in the investigation. This was compared with several other samples collected from murder victims found between 1996 and 1998. It was tested that day and came back late that afternoon. I recall that we were at the Yates home conducting a search when we got word that the DNA matched Robert Yates. At least eight of the victims had the same DNA found on them, so we knew we were dealing with a serial killer. All investigators were very happy. We were actually elated. The day after Yates was apprehended, a newspaper report was released detailing his arrest. Former sex worker Christine Smith saw the article and instantly recognized Yates as the man who had shot her in the back of his van in August 1998. At the time of the incident, she thought she'd been stabbed and had reported it to police. It wasn't until a couple of years later when she was involved in a car wreck that she went to the hospital and they discovered shrapnel in her head. And then she realizes that she's actually been shot. She hasn't been stabbed. Somebody has held a gun to her head and pulled the trigger. And not only that, this person who's done this is Robert Lee Yates. And she realizes I could have been one of his victims. Christine's corroboration gave investigators the decisive details they needed to see the whole picture. Her coming forward was very crucial to the task force. She came forward, provided the information to law enforcement, and she was a, a living victim, if you will. It's a living person that could testify against Robert Yates. A month later, in May 2000, investigators scrutinized Yates's black van. Inside, they discovered blood belonging to two other victims, three bullet holes, used bullets, and bullet debris containing Christine's DNA. When the task force finally got to her, they had the bullet fragment surgically removed, and it ballistically matched up to the same weapon that was used in some of these other killings. And while searching Yates' home, investigators discovered the murder weapons. He used handguns. Some of the victims may also have been killed with a 22, but most of the murders were committed by a 25 caliber handgun. The task force finally had enough to charge Yates with a total of 13 murders and the attempted murder of Christine Smith. In October 2000, Yates faced his charges at the Spokane Superior Court. In front of a packed room, the serial killer took the stand and made a shocking plea. Yates, to the surprise of many, goes to court and pleads guilty to 13 counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. By pleading guilty, Yates was able to avoid going to trial for his crimes. Robert Lee Yates struck a plea bargain. He confessed to 13 murders and actually got life in prison without the, the possibility of parole. And as a part of his plea deal, Yates revealed a terrible secret, the location of one of his victims. Robert Yates agreed to disclose the location of Melanie. None of the investigators knew where she was, and the family didn't know where she was either. 
So he agreed to lead us to her body. Using a hand-drawn map made by Yates, investigators were led to the side of the killer's home. They immediately began to excavate the site. Her body was located in Robert Yates's yard, buried. It was his trophy, so to speak. It was pretty horrendous. When the investigators were conducting the search inside the house, no one ever dreamt that she would be buried right outside his bedroom. We were surprised and dejected to know that he would do such a thing. This says he wants to be able to watch over the body of this victim, to have control over this crime scene. There's obviously some sadistic kind of a thrill associated with that. I mean, this body was buried at his family home, right outside the bedroom where he and his wife slept. This bargaining with police ultimately saved Yates's life. That was a strong selling point, that he would give up the location of her body and he would get a life sentence as opposed to the death penalty. The investigators, including myself, believed that he should get a death sentence. If the death sentence doesn't apply to him, who does it apply to? He ended up getting 408 years for the murders. In 2002, prosecutors in Pierce County, Washington, charged Yates with two additional murders, that of Melinda Mercer in 1997 and Connie Ellis in 1998. Yates had murdered both women while in Tacoma for work. He was convicted of further murders, and for those murders, he actually received the death penalty. In October 2002, Robert Lee Yates Jr. was sentenced to death by lethal injection. However, before the sentence would be carried out, Washington state abolished capital punishment. Yates is currently serving life in prison without the possibility of parole in Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Yes, as fate would have it, he's housed in the same facility in which he once worked as a prison guard 25 years earlier. A fitting end for a heartless killer. That is the most shocking part of this. He was just the guy that everybody has living next door to them. He wasn't this three-eyed monster or some sexual psychopath or registered sex offender. I mean, he was a father. He lived in a modest, upscale part of town. He'd been in the military just about as ordinary as you could possibly get. And he didn't look like a monster either. He looked like an average Joe. This averageness is something that actually played to his advantage as a serial killer. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Booms Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... 
In December 1988, in Kansas City, a man confessed to the brutal kidnapping and murder of six men. To him, they weren't living, feeling, breathing individuals. They were literally just pieces of meat, and he would do with them what he wanted. He had taken hundreds of photos and kept detailed notes of the unimaginable torture he unleashed on his victims. This was not a spree killing. This was not somebody out of control of their actions. This is somebody who knows what he's doing, knows what he wants to do, and does it. That is the definition of evil. <laughs>